If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus chapter 9. This morning we have been walking through uh, these different plagues and these signs and wonders that God had been giving to Pharaoh in an attempt to uh, reiterate his glory to remind Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and even the Hebrews and us today of who he is and how powerful he is. And how when he sovereignly decrees certain things and goes about them in certain ways that it is all meant to point back to his glory and to his honor. This past week on Monday or Tuesday, I believe we were sitting at the dinner table with our, with my family and uh, we began to see the thunderclouds roll in. As we began to watch through the window, I did what any man who would call himself a dad today would do. As I walked outside (laughs) and I looked and I observed and I watched those thunderstorms roll in. Now my kids were curious about this and they said, mom, why is dad outside when the storm is coming? And Haley's witty response was just simply because he's a dad and that's what dads do. (laughs) Can you even this morning call yourself a dad? If the storm's rolling in and you don't go outside, even in the midst of thunder and lightning, even in the midst of tornadoes and hailstorms, we go and we watch and we observe, and it's only okay until the little kids at four and five years old come out and join you, <laughs> that you then retreat into the inside, into the home. But you know, there's something about watching storms roll in. There's something peaceful even in the midst of rain and thunder and even lightning. And the answer and the question is why does it make us and why is it so attractive and why is it so alluring? I think in those moments because it makes us feel so small. It makes us feel for a moment, even if we will, just seemingly insignificant. And if we are believers, we know that it is God who brings the thunder and the lightning and the rains. And and so we look as those clouds roll in, we look as that even severe weather rolls in and we should be for the believer in all of that moment at the power and at the majesty and perhaps even in some moments, the terror of God, his power, his ability, his might, his sovereignty. When the book of Exodus chapter nine, as we approach this seventh plague, we see the power and we see the majesty and we see the sovereignty of the Lord on display once again to Pharaoh and all of his kingdom and the Hebrews who God says are his own. And could it be that in moments like this, that it would be true of the Hebrews and it would be true of the Egyptians that they would say, as Winston Churchill famously said, I am bewildered by the world. I am in awe of what I see and it is deeply confusing to me. 
As we have wrestled over the past several weeks or months with this idea of why God would do what he does and the purpose of the plagues and why he sent the plagues and why he would go about doing it in the ways that he chose to go about doing it, I want to draw our attention that in this moment, that in the beginning, we see that God sent the plagues to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate his might. Read with me, beginning in verse 13, where the Lord's word says, Says, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the land, and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Just in the very beginning, we see God setting himself above and beyond the power and the grip of Pharaoh who had himself be be deemed God to be said by his people to be worshiped as someone who was divine. And so when God instructs Moses to say these words, thus says the Lord, thus says God with a capital G, you listen to what I say and you remember these words, Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? Not just so they could go about their livelihoods, not just so that they could better themselves and have higher paying jobs and careers. No, you let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me. So that they may worship me that they may honor me, that they may walk in a rhythm in their life that demonstrates the faithfulness of God and the obedience of the Christian as he seeks to follow and as he seeks to worship and as he seeks to serve. For there is no other God who is worthy of their time and their affection and their attention and their resources than me. And so Pharaoh, you let them go that they may serve me because I will send all my plagues. Notice what he says in verse 14 on you, on your family, on your kingdom, on your people, on your possession, on your houses, on the things that you own, on your servants and your people so that they will know there is no other God, that I am unmatched in my worthiness, I am unmatched in my glory, and that there is none like me in all the earth. If you remember from Exodus chapter 5, The same Pharaoh was the Pharaoh who just simply said, who is this God that you were talking about? Who is this God that you are speaking about in Exodus 5-2? And yet in this moment, Moses is reminding him, Pharaoh, you didn't know this God, but now you will. Now you will not just know about him, now you will experience him. And so God sends the plagues to demonstrate his power. But I want you to see the second purpose 
in this endeavor is so that God would show that his mission is universal. For the text says in verse 15, for by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In all the earth. Not just in the land of Egypt, not just in the city of Fort Worth, Texas, not just in the greatest country in all the world, Texas. Oh yeah, I mean the United States. Not just in all of those places, but to the uttermost parts of the world that my glory, my name, my fame, my recognition would be proclaimed in all the earth. So that you would tell about my deeds and you would tell about my works. And so the Lord, in this moment, in this process, he begins to magnify his glory and he begins to put his perfection and his sovereignty on display as he not just gives one plague, but he repeats plagues in different forms over 10 different times to reiterate the fact that the idea is that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Friend, did you know that today that that mission is still the same? That his mission is that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. In all that we do and all that we say, not just for our beloved city, Fort Worth. Not just for all the towns and the cities that surround our beloved city, but to the uttermost parts of the world. God desires and he wants to partner with us as we join his mission to see the gospel preached and proclaimed to the deepest and even the darkest places here in this earth. Many of you are familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards. And oftentimes when we hear the name Jonathan Edwards, we note him to be contributed to Christianity in a variety of ways. His, his emphasis and his preaching on uh, ideas and, and truths in the scripture like repentance and holiness and commitment. But one of the things that I think that we miss about perhaps one of the most famous preachers in all of America is his desire to see the nations worship his king. And Jonathan Edwards had a close friendship with a missionary whom some of you may or may not have heard of before, a guy by the name of David Bernard. And David was a young and ambitious missionary who sought to see the Native Americans outside of New Jersey reached with the gospel of Jesus. And it was said of David's life early on that he would travel by horseback and in some years he would travel close to 4,000 different miles on horseback to see those that were far from God to come to know Christ. And in one of David's journals, he speaks about and he talks about how he spent four years on the mission field evangelizing these lost Native Americans and in four years he had but one visitor. One friend who checked up on him and to make sure that he was okay. 
Well, as scholars note, in the year of 1745, David left the missionary field in New Jersey and he entered into the town in which Jonathan Edwards, the young Jonathan Edwards at the time, was pastoring. And David and Jonathan began to develop a friendship. Well, soon after that relationship, David died at a very young age of tuberculosis. And it was Jonathan Edwards' daughter that actually took care of David towards the end of his life because of the friendship that existed. And I say all that to say that David had written sort of an autobiography, if you will, in his journal. And and he had talked about his missionary efforts to see the gospel of Jesus to the uttermost parts of the world. And it was solely because of Jonathan Edwards' influence in New England that David's autobiography was published two years later after his death. Now that may not seem like much significance until you continue to trace the history of that autobiography and those books that were written about David and you learn a couple of things. Number one, that it was David's account of evangelizing Native Americans that influenced men like Jim Elliott's. That influenced men like Adoniram Judson, that influenced the father of the modern missionary movement, William Carey, who got a hold of David's book and and his zeal and they, they saw it and they read it and they began to understand like God delivers and speaks through Moses that there is none like him in all the earth and that the goal of the believer was so that his name would be proclaimed to the uttermost parts of the world. And so in this moment, God reminds Pharaoh I will show my power and I will raise up Moses and Aaron and I will demonstrate my sovereignty so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 17, the text continues along and it says, you are still exalting yourself, Pharaoh, against my people and you will not let them go. But behold... About this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. In other words, what God is saying in that moment is you will experience a weather system and calamity unlike something that you have never experienced before. It will be the harshest of all rains. It will be the harshest of all thunderstorms and lightning storms. It will be the harshest of all hail that would fall to this ground and will leave you in utter ruin. One of the things that we have seen over the previous weeks is how God is not just demonstrating his power and his ability and his sovereignty in the midst of Pharaoh and his court and amongst his, uh, his servants. But what we see in this moment is God is also seeking to undermine The little gods that the Egyptians worshipped. The little gods that they bowed down before and they lit candles to and they sang songs to and they gathered in common spaces and they worshipped these false gods. And what God was doing in this moment is he was seeking to dismantle and unravel the gods that they worshipped. Gods such as the god Newt. 
The God that they worshiped that was the sky goddess who represented this vaulting sky in this system or perhaps the God Shu, the God of the atmosphere who they sang to and worshiped and lit candles to, who holds up the heavens in his hands or perhaps they were praying to the God Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, the one who brings the dew and brings the rain or perhaps the God Seth who was present in the midst of the wind and the storm. And God says, you bow down and you worship these gods. These impotent, feeble gods. And he says in this moment, I I will show you who in this moment is really in control. I will show you in this moment who is actually sovereign. I will demonstrate my power and my might. Verse 19 says, now therefore sin Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls to them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord, whoever heard his word and feared it, even amongst the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and hurried his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, left his slaves and and left his livestock out into the field, and we know the rest of the story, left them to utter ruin. I find it striking that in this moment, we begin to see a subtle shift that exists within the hearts of not just the Hebrews, but also the hearts of even the people that existed in the court of Pharaoh, the servants of Pharaoh. But notice what it says in verse 20. It says that whoever feared the word of the Lord. I believe that within modern evangelicalism, In particular, focusing on Southern Baptists in our own house, we have so minimized the word fear of the Lord. We have sought in our ability to to reach across the aisles and to convey this understanding that fear is is simply just but but a reverence. Just an understanding of, of respect that those who fear him, they, they just respect him and they, and they just revere his name and they honor his name. And certainly fear is a, a component of that, to revere his name. But, but in this moment, what is striking is that that fear, it moved these people to utter terror of action. So much so that they believe the word of God. They believe the word that Moses spoke and it caused them to bring their livestock inside. It caused them to bring all of the things that they held in high regard, to bring it in, to protect it. Why? Because they believed in this moment that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. They had seen enough And for that small few, then whoever feared the word of the Lord, you see, there are just two responses when we hear the word of the Lord. Just simply this, we can obey it or we can ignore it. 
We can believe that, that this is the, the word that God has spoken and we can walk in, in obedience or, or we can persist in, in apathy and become lethargic and ignore what it is that God tells us to do and to become apathetic. You see, they feared the word of the Lord in this moment. Listen to me. This was not a reverence. This was a holy terror. That God was sovereign, that he was powerful, that he had demonstrated his power prior to this. And it moved them to a place of action. They treated the word and they believed that God was who he said he was and he would do what he said he would do. I came across a story recently of the reformer Martin Luther who before his conversion, as he was seeking to work his way up within the Catholic church, he was uh, given the authority in this moment by his priest that was over him to issue and give mass. And so the priest that was over him said, listen, Martin, all you have to do when you come before the people is to say these words, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. That's it. I'll take care of the rest. So Martin, all you have to do are say these words, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And Martin approaches the podium to speak before his people and he, he freezes, he ices up, he doesn't say a word. Later, as he described this moment, he described it in such a way that the reason why that he iced up, the reason why that he froze, listen to the words of Luther, who understood the weight of the holiness of God and the fear of God. Luther says this, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men should tremble in his very presence. Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or I should raise my hands to someone who is divine, who angels surround his throne and worship him. I am just a sinner. I am just dust and ashes and full of sin, speaking to the living, eternal and true God. You see, what Martin Luther in that moment didn't understand pre-conversion was that he had a mediator that would go before the Father on his behalf. But in that moment, what Martin did understand that I think oftentimes the church forgets is the weight of the glory of God that exists, the fear and the terror of his word and hearing his word and understanding his word and walking in obedience to his word. Someone rightly characterized it this way. You can know the word of God without knowing the God of the word. But you can't know the God of the word without knowing the word of God. You can know all the facts and the truths about God and, and who he is without actually being in relationship with him. But you can't know the, the God of the Bible unless you know the word that he has given. 
That this is how he speaks to his people and this is how he communes with us as his people. Verse 22, the text moves along and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. I want to focus just briefly for that phrase, plant of the field. It comes from a Hebrew word, asheb, and, and the reason why you need to know that, that what this word comes from is because if you were to bring out your accordance or concordance or, or whatever it is that you use for Bible study, you would know that this is the same word that is used in Genesis 1, 11 and 12. When God creates and he brings forth the, the plants and the vegetation and what this is a signal of in this moment that the writer of Exodus, that Moses is doing for us, it's a signal that when God sent the plague, he destroys the very thing that he created. He destroys the, the vegetation and the food and the, and the substances. And basically what it means is, is what God is saying in this moment by using that word is I brought them into existence and buddy, I will take them out of existence. I brought you into the world and I will take you out of the world. Then Moses, verse 23, stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt and there was hail and fire and flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as never been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. He honored what he said he was going to do, verse 25, and the hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Everything that God said would happen, happened. Not metaphorically, but literally, it happened. Verse 26, but only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. God protects his people yet again. Then Pharaoh sent and he called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. Notice the words of Moses in this moment. And this is where we will end. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Would you plead with the Lord? For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I, I relent and, and please stop. I will let you go and you shall no longer stay. Moses, or Pharaoh again, issuing the promise that he would let him go. And Moses says to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord and the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord. A couple of things about Pharaoh's response to the wonders and the signs of God. You notice in particular in verse 27, where the text reads, Pharaoh sent and he called Moses and he called Aaron, but notice in this moment who he speaks to. He doesn't speak to the God who brings the hail and the thunder and the rain, but rather in this moment, he speaks to Moses and Aaron. And so we can infer from that quite directly that Moses was not in a place of asking for genuine repentance before the Lord. Why? Because he did not confess his sins to God. He confessed them to Moses and he confessed them to Aaron. 
But we also know and we see in verse 27, he didn't actually confess his sins. He was more remorseful for, for what he had done and, and for, the, for, the, for the effects of, of the cause of, of what was happening. And, and he says it in, the, in that way. Then he sends to them, this time I, I have sinned. The Lord's in the right. Well, Pharaoh, if you were here today, we would say, well, what have you sinned against? What is your sin that you, you have committed in this moment? Not actually offering contrition for 430 plus years of slavery of God's people and the murdering and the, the putting to death of God's people and in the bondage that exists by the hand of Pharaoh in the court of the Pharaohs. But I want you to notice as well in verse 34, where they go through all of this dialogue, and in verse 34 he says, but when, yet, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, as Moses promised would, he sinned yet again and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. You see, in this moment, Pharaoh didn't actually turn from any sin. He didn't turn from any sin because he didn't repent really of any sin and he didn't ask for forgiveness for any sin and, and says he hardens his heart again. I want to remind us this morning of a couple of things that we learned by way of Pharaoh. You see, when we sin against others, we must first recognize that it is a sin first and foremost against God. When you wrong another believer, you've not just wronged another believer or a lost person or whoever that is. You have first and foremost sinned against a holy God. Yes, it is true that you perhaps have sinned against them and done them wrong, but your first act of contrition in that moment is not so much remorse and sorrow for what you did, but it's a recognition that you have sinned against him. And there is no true repentance without the fear of God. Moses or Pharaoh didn't have that in his life and he didn't demonstrate that in his life. But we recognize by learning from Pharaoh that to truly repent, we have to understand who God is and his holiness and his majesty and his glory and his worth in all things. Confession to the Lord is first and to the person sinned against second. And we go to them and we ask for forgiveness. And we seek their forgiveness. Even in moments where perhaps relationally, maybe they're not ready to forgive, we still ask. One of the things that Haley and I strive for diligently is teaching our kids the difference between being sorry for certain things and asking for forgiveness for certain things. And one of the ways that we not just teach that, but we seek to embody that is how we speak and resolve conflict even within our own marriage. We seek to not use words like, I'm sorry, but rather better words like, will you forgive me? And we seek to display that in front of our kids and in front of the, our friends and our relationships because we understand that, that what God tells us to do is to not say we're sorry, though we may need to do that from time to time, but, but rather, friend, brother, sister, would you forgive me? We're speaking harshly for wronging you, for whatever it is that exists or whatever it is that you perceive exists, you see repentance is different from remorse. 
Remorse is the sadness that comes along the way when we're suffering uh, relational uh, strife and issues, when we're suffering the, the judgment of God, even in those moments. Remorse is useful in leading us to repentance, in leading us to, to asking for forgiveness. It's okay to be caught in those moments and, and we are, are ashamed maybe even in those moments and, and we recognize that even in those moments that I, I need the remorse, but it's in the remorse that ultimately leads me to repent and, and to turn, unlike Pharaoh who continued to harden his heart once again and, and decided not to turn in the other direction that he was facing. to not conceal, to not hide. Writer of Proverbs 28 says this, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them, he finds mercy. Isn't this what we would want today from our God? Is to find mercy, to receive mercy to acknowledge our wrongdoings from him, to not conceal, to not hide. I was reminded of a story that I read years ago of a pastor who, after Sunday church service, got the visitor roster and he began to make phone calls down that visitor roster to welcome those that had come. And he called this one particular family and as he the phone picked up on the other end. He heard a small voice of a young four-year-old child. And he whispered and he said, hello. And the pastor said, who is this? And the whisperer said, this is Jimmy. And he said, Jimmy, how, how old are you? And Jimmy said, I'm four. He said, well, Jimmy, can I, can I please speak to your mom or dad? They came to church this morning. I'd like to talk to them. Is your mom available? And Jimmy just said, she's busy. And he said, well, Jimmy, is your dad available? I'd like to speak to your dad. And Jimmy just responded, he's busy. The pastor, growing frustrated, he said, Jimmy, are there any other adults in your home that I can speak to? And Jimmy just politely responded, the police. <laughs> the pastor said, well, can I speak to one of the police officers? And Jimmy whispered again, they're busy. Pastor growing frustrated said, Well, Jimmy, who else is there in your home? And he said, The firemen. Well, Jimmy, can you put one of the firemen on the home? And Jimmy then whispered, He said, They're all busy. The pastor had come to the end of his ropes and he says, Well, Jimmy, what are they all busy doing? And Jimmy responded, You see, Jimmy knew how to conceal and he knew how to hide. And maybe today there are some of you concealing and maybe today there are some of you hiding. And can I gently remind you that like Pharaoh and like all of the peoples before him that we cannot hide from our God. We cannot conceal. That he knows every word, every action, he knows every thought, even before the thought enters into our head. 
And the gospel teaches us that those who would confess our sins before a holy and righteous God will receive forgiveness. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of him. And the Bible teaches that all those who would call upon his name would be saved. Would you call upon his name this morning? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your good word to us. We thank you that it is through your spirit and the power of your spirit that you put your fear into our hearts and into our lives. And so Father, may it be true of us that we would be a people that fear you, that honor your word and that seek to walk in faithfulness. Father, would you encourage the hearts of your church today? Would you build your church today? And would you send us out of here on your great mission to proclaim your name to the uttermost parts of the world. We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.